Hi, everyone. I'm Raj Kumar, president and editor-in-chief of DevX. This week, we'll be breaking down the big headlines in global development and bringing in some top experts to help us do it. If you want to follow along with the stories we're talking about, check out devx.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter, The Newswire. There's a link in the description. Follow us along on Twitter, and you can see many of the stories we're talking about today. And we'd love to hear what you think. This is This Week in Global Development. I want to welcome Anna Gowell, our my colleague, our managing editor at DevX. Uh, welcome, Anna. Thanks, Raj. And uh, and hi, Stefan. Stefan Durkan is with us today. Hi, Stefan. Oh, hi. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining us as our, our special guest this week, Stefan. Stefan is, of course, a professor at Oxford uh, in the study of economic policy. He directs the Center for the Study of African Economies and uh, recently wrote the book Gambling on Development, a great book. He and I spoke on on my book club podcast about it. And of course, it's probably mostly known to this audience because, Stefan, you were the uh, chief economist at DFID back when there was a DFID uh, before it became part of FCDO. Uh, so it's great to have you. It's great to have you, Anna. Um, how are you both doing? Can't complain. A little rainy day, but can't complain. Oh, in the UK, we have sunshine at last. We haven't seen it for two weeks, so it's good. Well, that's good. Yeah, we, we thought this would be a quiet summer week, as we often do. And turns out there's lots of news in global development, as always. Uh, probably the biggest story this past week was a, a story we broke at DevX. Colin Lynch, our UN senior correspondent, broke a story about the sustainable development goals, which are at their halfway point and will really be the main focus of this year's UN General Assembly. And it turns out that not all is well in the background, that uh, there isn't a lot of agreement about the role of the UN and how they ought to frame the, the, the kind of midpoint of these SDGs. So I thought maybe we could start there. Maybe, Anna, do you want to tell us a little bit more about what that story actually revealed? Sure. So basically, the U.S., U.K., and some allied countries are, are blocking a declaration that wants to get a bit specific on ways to reform the uh, international financial architecture, which, of course, is something that lower-income countries have been clamoring for. Um, the the West Western bloc, if you will, kind of insists that this be addressed through um, – MDBs such as World Bank, uh, G20, G7, whereas lower-income countries are trying to get this addressed at the UN. And I think it's it's really exacerbating the divisions between uh, lower-income countries and high-income countries. And right at the time where, you know, we've got debt distress, climate shocks, lingering effects of, of the pandemic. So it doesn't exactly portend well for the meeting that's coming up. I believe it'll start September 18th. Stefan, you, you got to see this um, inside government when you were at DFID. What do you think about the SDGs? Do you, do you feel like, you know, there's a couple different narratives out there. Some people feel like they've been a bit of a failure. Others might say, hey, this is the right framework. We're just, we're just failing on actually achieving them, but this is the right approach. How, how do you feel about where we are with the sustainable development goals at their midpoint? They're not without problems, the SDGs. And, and the... Um, setting these kind of very broad goals and this many of them, you know, the, the variety of indicators and targets that need to be reached. I, I always felt I was, I was around when, when they were agreed, it was always a bit of a recipe for, for trouble afterwards because 
it, and it has a bit to do with with a couple of the of, of the underlying narratives. And I think this comes to a head here again, is that you know if we take the comparison with the MDGs and especially some of the you know the 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 main five six ones that were very much to do with very specific kind of human development kind of targets. Um, you could you could see it that you know look there is a response to be to be had with these in terms of providing money for it, providing resources and trying to invest, and you you have a clear sense what the theory of change is to achieve them. I think the problem with the SDGs is uh, one of the many is that beyond the kind of legitimacy of having every country in the world included, including some, you know, countries run by war criminals and others uh, um, actually signing this whole thing and the legitimacy around it that it may or may not give them, is that actually it reduces it often too much to money and actually saying, look, and these are actually a very broad set of goals. A lot of it is policy, a lot of things. And then we're getting very quickly, oh, well, it's something we can buy. We can go to the supermarket and buy the SDGs. And I know, I know that they're far too complicated for that. They are, they have a lot to do with what happens with domestic internal politics and the way it's all, all handled and the policy making around it. And so I, I feel like it, it became a difficult framework also, uh, as seen from New York. And then I think if you look at the story here as well, one of the proposals was to set up a half a trillion stimulus fund for the for the SDGs. It, it suggests somehow these are things you can buy, and 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 I I don't think that's that's actually the the case. You know, if you if you ask me, how much will it cost to reach the SDGs in the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo? Um, a good friend of mine, Shanta Devrajan, one day uh, said, you know, I used to have to calculate this, but I'm really embarrassed by the calculations I had to do because I think the true answer is infinity. Given what's going on in the politics and in the in the situation in such a country, you can't buy these things with money. So it 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 puts this all a bit in the in the in the kind of the in the in the wrong in the wrong framework. So I think that's and and yeah, we're midway to it and such a diverse set of goals. And it's not. It was never very clear what the right theory of change was to actually get this. So, so I'm. Uh, yeah, I was always a bit skeptical, and I worry that it now comes to a head, essentially, within a fundamental discussion, which is an important one: the international financial architecture. And then, yeah, I can see that the UN would say it should be more with us, and then the IVs and uh, often supported by the G7, it should be with with, with them. And mm-hmm. it's not a new discussion, but it is essential discussion. I think it's distracting from the kind of agreement and the lack of progress of the SDGs. I think it's it's a much bigger question that needs to be handled. Yeah, th- this is going to really, I think, frame what happens at this year's UN General Assembly, because, you know, ultimately the way we look at this set of issues and even the role of the UN is implicated here, uh, it's going to govern really how many of the most important debates happen in the development and the climate space for the rest of this year. I mean, we've got the October meetings in Marrakesh, the World Bank annual meetings, the first a uh, big gathering with the new president of the World Bank, Ajay Banga. There's going to be a lot of pressure on figuring out what does this new reform at the World Bank really look like in terms of crowding in private sector funding. And this debate at the UN that we've revealed in our reporting kind of puts even more pressure on that World Bank annual meeting because it suggests, well, actually, it's not going to be the UN uh, that comes up with real action plans and solutions. It's going to be the World Bank and other regional development banks. Uh, and so there's a, there's a tension about the whole international architecture and who really should be in the lead here. 
And of course, Mia Motley and others, uh, you know, leading reform agendas want the UN because you've got the developing countries themselves with much more voice at the UN than they have in the G7 or G20 or in the in the boards of the of the MDBs. So these are pretty fundamental debates that are really going to govern kind of how the financing of development climate moves forward. And uh, and it might seem like kind of a, a small backroom you know, debate over over periods and commas in some meaningless, toothless memorandum coming out of the UN. But I think it points to something much, much larger. And that may determine how the, the SDGs ultimately, you know, ultimately go for the next seven and a half years. Um, Anna, we, we covered that story, of course, but there was a related story that came out of the UK, um, and that's around the SIDS. And it gets to this question of the architecture of our sector and how people you know, think about where the funding comes from and who it goes to. And these SIDS, these small island developing states are saying, hey, this architecture doesn't work for us. We're, we're effectively, we're too rich. And the SDGs and, and the official development assistance, it's all very focused on the poorest countries as measured by gross national income per capita. And we don't qualify very often. Now, small island developing states don't qualify. And yet the sea levels are rising. Some of these countries might get swallowed up literally by the seas and others just face massive potential damage. And so they're calling foul. Um, and, and the UK government was kind of put front and center in this debate. And I, so I'd love to get both of your take on this and, and on this broader question of, of the SDGs and the, and the World Bank and MDBs and the architecture, all the kind of open questions that this reporting points to. Anna, why don't you take us a little further on the SID story? And I'd love to hear Stefan's views. I mean, as you said, they're they're kind of getting punished for technically being too rich, which is, you know, not the case. A lot of it comes down to the fact that they're sparsely populated. Um, but, you know, they have this double whammy that they're incredibly vulnerable to climate shocks, and that's not going to change any time in the near future. It's going to, if anything, it's just going to increase. Um, just to give you an idea, it was, I believe, Hurricane Irma, um, which decimated almost 50% of uh, Antigua and Barbuda's uh, GDP back in 2017. And they had just graduated out of low-income status from the OECD's uh, Development Assistance Committee. So there's obviously something crazy about that, and they were no longer eligible for official development assistance or any concessional financing. So they've raised the issue uh, in a UK inquiry, but really it needs to be addressed at the OECD level, um, possibly at the World Bank meetings. But so far, it's not on the agenda of either. Right. And it just turns out that the person leading the biggest, most successful movement for reform of the international financing architecture is the prime minister of one of these small island developing states, uh, Barbados, and Mia Motley is prime minister there. So it's kind of fascinating. She's kind of at the center of these two separate debates that are happening. Stefan, how do you see this? I'm afraid I saw it from inside uh, <laughs> Diffid and FCDO all the time as well. And basically, how do you, you know, a lot of these are closely linked to the UK as well. And so the pressure is all the time there. We should fund them for, uh, we, we should fund, fund them more. And it's, you know, the, the thing that I always with, with, with these stories also struggle with is that and in, in the D2D inquiry that was happening in the, in the way it was raised in, in UK Parliament is that, you know, the trade-off is not articulated. It's basically said, well, 
no, surely they should get more money. And by the way, within the framework, they could they they, they did get hundred euro hurricane Irma, they could get humanitarian support and so on. But of course, it comes down to all the reconstruction and the whole all all pressures on it. But it's basically you're always sitting then in a, in a situation where you know where will you then take the money from? You know where 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 is it going? And so so the problem with uh, what what small island states well surely we deserve more. We should have the rules adjusted to it. But the envelope doesn't increase. And so the problem with with climate is is that so much of the climate uh, issues we're trying to fund again from the development budgets that we have, and then of course there's trade offs. And so this is this is for me then, uh, you know, we, maybe you make them eligible for concessional loans, but it means others will get less of it unless we generally can boost uh, the finance in the whole system, which is in the UK system not self-evident. Um, and so, the, so, so the whole idea there's no trade-offs here. Well, this is one of these clear examples. You need to get that that concessional that grant finance from somewhere unless you can really make the case that the finance has to be increased. Yeah, that's right. And that it does feel a bit like there's a political conversation happening quite divorced from the discussion we're having within global development, those of us who are believers in this mission and this effort. As you say, there's some nuance. So it's not as though you can just buy the SDGs, right? It's not as though those of us who are who are believers in the global development effort think, oh, it's simply write a check and it's all over. But that doesn't mean we don't need more money, right? There, there is a need for additional financing. I think you find many leaders across our community and NGOs running development agencies, et cetera, who say, and convincingly looking at the data that we are just vastly underfunding issues like global health and climate. But on the other hand, the political realities are much more challenging. And it feels like political leaders in donor countries are trying to find ways to squeeze additional funding without actually increasing the envelope. So they're looking to innovation in the MDB system or innovation at the IMF with the um, with SDRs. They're looking for kind of money under the couch cushions that they otherwise wouldn't have to convince their taxpayers and voters to part with. Uh, but maybe we're going to soon hit some moment where that's simply not good enough. And there has to be an actual capital increase at the World Bank and at the other MDBs. Stefan, what's your take on how the politics plays against against this debate we have within global development? Yes. No, no, I, I agree with you uh, on it. It's, 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 level, it's at the level of the, of the politics. And, you know, there's some that still within the, in the development community like to defend the line. Look, there are no trade-offs uh, between climate uh, and, and poverty alleviation and development and so on. But of course, the trade-offs which comes because it's different localities. Eh? The small island states, if they need to get more money, we're going to take it from, from somewhere else. Now, the politics is clearly such that, um, you know, uh, I definitely can see it in Europe where, um, you know, funding is being squeezed already now and uh, not just in the UK and, and, and in other places as well. And it, it, it's, yeah, the politics of it is um, by actually also having a narrative, you know, look, anything we do for development is also good for climate. Anything we do for climate is also good for development. But this is a concrete example. It's actually writing the check for small island states or increasing the grant finance. It's going to come, have to come from somewhere. You know, you're going to take something away from Yemen, uh, from humanitarian aid, or you're going to take something for somewhere else. And, and you know, it will, yeah, it, it, 
the pressure will be there. But I'm afraid I'm a bit pessimistic. Is that the storytelling will continue? That there is that there is no issue here, uh, and the envelope will not increase um, in the short run, given all the fiscal situations. And so I fear there's going to be a bit of hypocrisy in the politics, which uh, we often get, I'm afraid, also on the development issues. Yeah, and maybe this year's UN General Assembly will be a chance to reframe that debate and actually wake the world up to the idea that we can't just get something for nothing. There has to be a new debate inside you know, donor countries uh, about increasing that funding envelope. The politics do not look very favorable from where I sit, but at some point, uh, you know, as we sit through one of the hottest summers, maybe the hottest summer ever, as we see climate playing out around the world, at some point, the world's going to have to wake up to the need for additional finance. And, you know, UNGA could be the, the moment to set that narrative, that agenda around the SDGs, how far behind we are as we go into the World Bank annual meetings and then COP, where the real money will be, you know, hopefully put forward. The world is facing an unprecedented global food crisis. Here at DevEx, we're following the state of food insecurity around the world and the solutions that are needed to overcome it. I'm Teresa Welsh, senior reporter, and I'm also the author of DevEx Dish, a free weekly newsletter bringing you a comprehensive look at everything that matters in the world of food. Each Wednesday, DevEx Dish will be your guide through the interlocking policy, infrastructure, climate, agriculture, nutrition, and human rights issues remaking the way food is grown and distributed. Visit devex.com newsletters to subscribe and get your weekly update on the race for a sustainable global food system. You know, Anna, we had a story this week, maybe gets a little bit into the politics behind these issues. Uh, DevEx, you know, put forward a Freedom of Information Act request in the UK and found out about a pretty small but intriguing program that the uh, UK government is funding through official development assistance in China. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that and how it kind of fits into this broader conversation. Sure. Uh, oh, boy, this is this is quite the story. So um, the aid money is being used to train uh, soccer uh, referees and coaches across China. Um, as you said, it's a very small amount of money. It's about 200,000 over three years, um, which when you look at it, it's just, you know, a tiny, tiny fraction of aid. But the optics, um, especially coming out of the fact that we just learned that thousands of people could die because of um, uh, the many UK aid cuts that are taking place. The optics are just absolutely horrible. You're partnering with the Premier League, which I don't know much about soccer, but I believe it's the world's richest soccer league. Um, but you're still using official development assistance um, for this program. But at the same time, again, the caveat is this is a very tiny amount of money and the FCDO has been cutting back on on aid spending in China by a significant amount of money, I think well over 90%. So it does need to be put into perspective. But whoever kind of came up with this, I don't know if they specialize in PR. It's just the optics of it are not very good. Yeah, I, I could see a good argument, actually, although we published this piece, I could see a good argument for doing programs like this, right? Very relatively small amounts of money leveraging British culture through the Premier League developing you know relationships beyond the government in 
a country like China, where there's growing competition, if not conflict, between the West and China. I, I could see arguments for it. Um, and I can see some some real challenges with these kinds of stories coming out uh, because maybe it just feeds into right wing views about official development assistance and and the idea that, look, this is where the money goes. It's all wasted on you know soccer programs in China. Uh, Stefan, what, what's your view on this? It, it, it's a bit of nuance. And so it's a little tricky to have nuance in politics. But you lived through this when you were at uh, DFID and FCDO. There have been a number of programs that end up getting picked up in the Daily Mail and elsewhere and that kind of shift the narrative. Uh, what, what's your view about this program and programs like it? Yeah, no, this is, I mean, I, I couldn't, couldn't help but both smile and then just go back to uh, the time that I was inside the organization. This is, this has basically been my life for the last 12 years. It feels this kind of, this kind of stories and this kind of uh, bleep. So, you know, let, let's put it, let's be first very clear. As seen from FCDO, this is a mistake. Okay, so they're basically, uh, they've been cutting anything that moved, anything that was involving China for political optics, being trying to cut forever and has been going on now for a while. There's some excellent, real, proper, sensible engagement type of programs that have been cut. There was virtually nothing left. And then, you know, with some digging, some uh, freedom of information requests, they find something there again, a little mistake. We should also have no mistake about the nature of a program like this. Um, you know, this is... Um, this is a typical soft power program. You know, if you think what is the UK soft power, it's probably largely beyond the language. It's probably two other things. It's the BBC, but that's for people, people that are very well educated. Premier League is the biggest soft power export that the UK can offer in, anywhere in the world. You know, you go to the smallest village in Africa and they will be watching the Premier League and following it. And so it is big. It's massive and it's really important. And that's arguably that's the reason why they happily team up with it. This is a soft power program. When I was chief economist, also afterwards as an advisor inside the organization, I would argue I don't see that much happening here with development. But there was always a lot of people that would love to fund these programs because great photo opportunities for ministers and so on. So I think what's happening probably inside FCDO, maybe as we speak even, a few people are working very hard with the British Council to make sure there's no more money flowing for this particular program to China. And then we can argue, as you, uh, Raj, as you were alluding to, are these the things maybe they should be doing in other countries, Premier League engagement, is that a good thing? But let's not make a mistake. This is not starting for development, it's actually starting for soft power. And this is not, this is more a reflection of how maybe also the UK aid program has slipped from the time 10 years ago when it was really very obsessed and very careful always with let's do development at the core and really thinking carefully through it to programs that they think they could get more broader support, political support in UK Parliament for and so on. And I fear this is one, but then they made the mistake to leave China into the program. Yeah, it's quite true. And it's exactly what people were afraid of when DFID was merged into FCDL, right? That the development focus would be diminished and that the government would use the, what was at the time, a growing amount of aid, the 0.7% commitment, uh, that they would use it for non-development purposes. You now fast forward to today, the, such a level of demoralization inside that agency. Um, the, the amount of funding has dropped back down from 0.7, I guess, to 0.5. You know, significant aid cuts have happened in the UK. 
and a huge percentage, I think 29% um, of last year's official development assistance budget went to the costs of um, serving refugees inside the borders of the UK. So, you know, really there's an enormous challenge right now in terms of British foreign assistance. One of the world's most important donors um, is now embroiled in this very core question of, you know, definitions. What counts as aid? How much are they really spending on it? What are the priorities? Again, you were there for quite a long time, Stefan. What's what's your broader view about about British aid today? So, look, I I, I was still around with uh, previous foreign secretary, uh, uh, someone called Liz Truss that other people may have heard of after she became prime minister, not for very long. Um, but, you know, that was a period when it does definitely going down in terms of the ability to be able to focus on development. You know, the budget had cut morale is extremely low. I will give some credit to the current development minister, Andrew Mitchell, has been brought back. He is someone who was actually a DFID, a Secretary of State, so leading DFID in the uh, about 12 years ago. You know, he generally is committed to development and he's trying to get at least some stabilization uh, around the organization. But when it comes to the budget, yes, it's totally eroded. You know, the 28 percent, it's not and it's not necessarily going to go down quickly. It's an, a real eroding of, you know, the the overall budget, what is actually spent on, on development. And I must say, it was always something I worried about also as chief economist. When you go to a point or to a percentage budget of your GNI, that means you're going to a fixed budget. And then, of course, you create incentives for your finance ministry, for the UK Treasury, to find anything that moves, can I batch it as eight? So you've got this kind of almost a, a, a finance department, uh, the, the, the Treasury in the UK, hunting to actually, can I batch certain things as eight? Can I try to change the definition in Paris? Can I find ways of moving it? And so the incentives are all about reducing how much in the end you spent really on the development side. So the, the point seven was was maybe something a lot of people loved, but it created such a, uh, perverse incentives. And that's what we get to now, where we're actually in deep crisis. And this real careful thinking needs to be done now. Now in the next year, there's elections coming up, what the proposals of the different parties will be. But they need to really be thinking carefully about to get a, a predictable core budget on development again, because otherwise it will stay a mess for some time to come. Right. It's that, what's that expression? Um, why do you rob banks? Because that's where the money is, something like that. <laughs> and now, you know, that's where the money is in, in official development assistance in the UK because of that target. And I guess it made everybody come after it, including Boris Johnson and, as you say, later governments as well. You know, we had a story I'd love to get your take on as well, Stefan, as we get close to wrapping up here uh, about about the focus on food systems in Africa. Um, the story talks about how, you know, essentially Africa has something like 45% of the world's arable land, remaining arable land, and yet it's a net importer of food. And essentially the argument made in the piece is that we in the global development community focus too much on the smallholder farmer and on improving yields at the, at the level of the farm. There's, there's a quote in the piece that says, you know, if, um, if a farmer without a market is a gardener and that we're essentially not focusing enough on what happens beyond the yield at an individual farm, we're not focusing enough on processing and distribution and the, 
and the broader value chain. You know, you've looked at these programs as chief economist, and you still do in your in your various current roles. Do you think there's some some validity to that argument? Absolutely. I, I'm. Uh, th- th- there is definitely th- there is a real problem. You know, we look entirely on the kind of the policies we do towards agriculture, and it's not in itself that we do it on the smallholder, but it's that if we largely do it, it's all about input-driven, supply-driven, and we don't really think about the demand side, you know, the urbanization, the urban centers, are they actually demanding for what's being produced? What is the, how do we develop that demand side in these countries and how do you develop the markets and so on? So yeah, there is a, there's a real issue there. Um, and I should add to it because a lot of the, the policies that we then promote have a lot to do or little things we may be able to give to a farmer or to as little input or an input subsidy or a new, new seat or whatever. Agricultural policies in a lot of these countries are actually still very much biased against these farmers. The prices that they get, the way the markets are done, the way the urban centers are done. Go to a country like Malawi with with huge issues on food security. But it has a lot to do simply with the overarching uh, economic policies that are pursued relative to agriculture. We seem to have forgotten about it, definitely in the aid community. We, We think it's all about just farm-level, small-scale farmers' productivity increases. There's another piece there that actually is so distortive for them. And it's, yeah, and it is, a, it is a disgrace that Africa cannot produce enough agriculture to either sell to the world and, uh, and to feed its own population and, you know, do all these, these things. And it's, uh, the potential is there, but, it's, uh, but it is a policy side and it's, you need to have another look at it than simply starting from the what's happening on the small farmers plots itself is that whole chain in between and the macro policies around it. It's a great point. It goes right back to your first point in our conversation today that you can't buy the SDGs. And there is maybe, you know, something attractive about the the concept when people talk about we're, we're missing X trillion dollars to achieve the SDGs. There's something attractive about the idea that that's all we're missing. That if only we came up with the money, we would be there. And as you say, there's also a very important policy dimension, human rights dimension. Uh, you know, when you think about uh, authoritarian governments and the and the decline in civil liberties around the world, there are many other dimensions. It's not just the financing one. As much as that is front and center uh, at this upcoming UN General Assembly, and will continue to be at, at the World Bank meetings and at COP. You know, we talked a lot today about the UK and its financing challenges. But I thought maybe you could tell us, uh, Anna, about another country that's facing similar pressure around aid cuts. Country is Germany. Um, the ruling coalition is suggesting a 5% cut to the development budget, um, except for defense, which is uh, largely owing to the fact of the war in Ukraine. Um, it's a bit surprising on the one hand, because this ruling coalition um, has been wanting to restore aid cuts from the previous government. Um, but at the same time, it's not all that surprising. I mean, even aid advocates talk about the fact that development is not a priority compared to defense. This is a government that's determined to rein in debt. Um, And it was a compromise that took uh, several months. So whether these cuts will be able to be reversed is up in the air. But again, I think um, another caveat, because it is, this is a, a, a very classic example of a nuanced story. Um, this ruling coalition was able to get last year, I believe, the um, 
percentage uh, of, of uh, GNI going to A to be above 8%. So that's quite significant. That's quite more than 0.5% of the UK. So we're still coming at these cuts from a pretty high level. They still need to be passed by the German parliament. So even though it's a bit surprising, um, there's still a lot of hope that this won't be as dire as the UK cuts. Yeah, it's just a good reminder that the politics around foreign assistance um, are not headed in our direction uh, in many places. The UK is maybe the standout. It gets a lot of the attention. Uh, the U.S., even with uh, you know all the challenges in the in U.S. politics in Washington, has been able to have a fairly steady uh, budget in part because of the way you know our system is structured and what happens when you have gridlock in the U.S. Congress. But you know, from countries like Sweden out of countries like Germany, as well as the UK and others, Italy and others, uh, aid budgets are under pressure in a lot of the world. Um, and so, you know, this big story that, that we broke this week about about the debates happening at the UN, you know, these are these are debates that are happening outside, also inside uh, donor capitals. And uh, I think it's going to be a, you know, they're really going to come to a head by the time we're all together in September in New York. So I think we've run out of time, but it's been a great conversation. Uh, great to be with you, Stefan and, and Anna. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time to join us this week. This has been This Week in Global Development. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe using the link in the description. To get even more coverage and analysis on the most pressing development issues of the day, become a DevX Pro member by going to devx.com membership and signing up. Thank you for listening and see you next week.